certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you for you to pour out your spirit of illumination upon this congregation, that you would give the listeners uh, ears to hear, hearts that are teachable. We pray that the unfolding of your word would give light this morning, and both preacher and listener, we completely depend upon your spirit to feed us and equip us and to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, Paul's words here in chapter 2, the close of chapter 2, are his closing arguments for the defense of his apostolic ministry. His, his very important and strong closing arguments. Everybody who is an order, lawyer, pastor, uh, has a strong closing case to make their final appeal to the jury or whoever it is, right? And this is Paul writing, no, not speaking, but writing a very strong closing set of arguments for why he preaches a gospel of grace and why he goes against the Judaizers, against these false teachers in the churches of Galatia. He has been attacked by them, his ministry questioned, and he makes his defense here. And he does so by not only a doctrinal elaboration of what the gospel is, that it is through faith by Christ in, excuse me, through faith by grace in Christ alone. Not only is it doctrinal, but it also is autobiographical. And Paul here speaks very personally about his own belief, his own defense, his own confession of faith. What does he believe about the gospel in relationship to law-keeping? What does Paul believe about the gospel in relationship to obedience to the law? It's a very important question. How do I live out my Christian life? Where does obedience play play a role? So this is his personal confession, but it is actually the confession testimony of every single Christian. Because every single Christian has been saved through faith by grace in Christ alone. And so when he says, I am crucified with Christ, he is not getting at anything that is to him alone as a chief of sinners or untimely born apostle, but actually is universally accepted by all Christians. All Christians having been, te- been crucified with Christ, all Christians no longer living themselves, but Christ and living in them, all Christians living by faith in the Son of God who loved them and gave himself up for them. So, He has found here 
contrary to what the Judaizers are saying, is that redemption is a person. Redemption is a person. It's not actually even a state of being necessarily. A shalom, a a well-being. It's not that exclusively or, or necessarily. It's not even a place necessarily. Eden or the new heavens and new earth. And it's not even necessarily a performance of do's and don'ts. Most surely it's not that. Redemption is a person. And Paul explodes in joy over the fact that he has a relationship with this Messiah that he had no knowledge of. For those outside of Christ, they are, they are separated from Christ. They are relationally away and severed from Christ. But having come to Christ and having come to faith, Paul counts himself as brought into Christ and finding that his entire redemption, freedom from the law, freedom from sin, victory over death and the devil, is all wrapped up and bound, not in a set of do's and don'ts, but in a person. And if it's a person, then it is actually relational with that person. And this is, this is Christianity 101. But it is astounding to see Paul's own jubilation over this discovery that he is no longer alone and he does no longer live according to the law. If someone wants to live according to the law to seek to be justified by the law, that person is separated from Christ. They are relationally barren, relationally alone not with God and the world. But the person who has faith in Christ actually is belonging to somebody. And not just somebody, but the Lord himself. So this is what is really enrapturing Paul's heart and mind. That faith in Christ, or you could say faith into Christ, as we live in Christ, brings the Christian into a warm, loving, lively, and victorious life in Christ. Paul's insistence, or excuse me, the Judaizers' insistence on salvation by works leaves the sinner separate, and and Paul's going for the jugular to say, Whatever, I've been crucified to the law, to sin. And as he would say in chapter 6, by the cross of Christ, I've been crucified to the world. And the world's been crucified to me. And I boast in the cross. It's actually a symbol of victory now. It's not a symbol of shame, but a symbol of victory. So we have this comparison between Christ or law. Christ or law. Who died on the cross? Did, didn't Christ die on the cross? But did any tablet of stone die on a cross? Did any tablet of stone or document take on human flesh? Does any tablet or stone or document or law uh, sympathize with its people? No. Only Christ. And there's relational 
discovery found in Christ that Paul just explodes with here. So we're going to look at here that we need to stay there. Just stay living in Christ. Christianity is not a religion where you come and you go on to anything else, but you have the Lord of glory in you. On the moment of your belonging and believing in Jesus Christ, and you just stay there. You remain there. Worship there. It's where we all belong. And of course, we we grow in grace and we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and so forth, but we never go beyond our Lord. And, And we certainly do not go back to the law. So, we want to remain grounded on this, and we also want to stave off temptations to justify ourselves by the law. Because if any of us have a problem with pride, okay, all of us do, we have a tendency to think, I can actually get this done on my own. I'm a self-sufficient, self-reliant, autonomous, smart individual, and I can get this done on my own. And that's anti-gospel. That's anti-gospel. What is true and true a biblical gospel is a self-emptying faith that I have nothing apart from Christ. So, first off, to stave off legalism, justifying ourselves by the law and, and simply come to him by faith and faith alone, we need to understand that Christ's crucifixion was victorious for us. Christ's crucifixion was victorious. You know, the Romans slaughtered thousands upon thousands upon thousands on crosses as a symbol of shame and defeat and would strike terror into their enemies. You go against us, the Pax Romana, this is what you get, right? But Paul, you could actually say the Lord, takes the symbol of the cross and makes actually a symbol of victory because on the cross of Calvary where Christ died, voluntarily we were crucified with him and we won with him he won it wasn't plan b he won on the cross he wanted to go to the cross that was victory golgotha's hill was victory so we see as paul does here the cross is a winning moment All of our biggest enemies defeated. The law, the condemning power of the law, the tyranny of sin over us, the devil, death itself, all broken and put away because Christ was crucified. And we see that Christ was crucified, but Paul also says that we were crucified with Christ. We were crucified with him. So whatever struggles we have presently, are not just struggles that just popped up today. And any victory over sin that we have didn't just happen today. All victory happened 2,000 and something years ago. That's where we win. Because Christ won. And we are joined with Christ. Possibly, probably best commentary on verse 20 
that first sentence is verse 19. He says, through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, I died to the law. The law showed my great sinfulness and need for righteousness, right? It was a twofold problem. I was a, a great sinner according to the law, and I lacked what I needed to become righteous in God's sight. The law showed me my great need for righteousness, and through the law came Jesus Christ who died according to the law. So Jesus' life according to the law became my benefit, who was guilty under the law. So the law comes in, and Jesus lives according to the law, a perfect righteous life according to the law. And he dies according to the law. He becomes our curse bearer in 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus becomes our curse bearer, the innocent, holy, undefiled Lamb of God, is our curse bearer. And we see no wrath. We see no curse. Only Christ receives that. And we don't see a drop of it. You don't see a drop of the wrath of God that is due you at all because Christ took that cup. And he took that according to the law. So he, he died according to the law. Our sins imputed to him. We receiving the righteousness of Christ as his perfect life imputed to us. And where he has victory on the cross, we share in that victory. So not only was the law done away with, it's condemning power. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's condemning power done, nullified, negated, Forever. The law, that, that guillotine that was hanging over all of our necks, done away with. There's no fear. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation from the law because we've been crucified with Christ. Thus, we need no approval to God by the law because it's already been done away with. So the law has been done away with. Sin has been done away with. Because the Christian has been crucified with Christ. Sin's tyranny has ended. If you flip over or follow me as I read aloud, Romans 6, starting in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's what we had, a body of sin. We were a body of sin. Brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we were slaves to sin. Sin, our master, our tyrant. Verse 7, it continues, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You have these words in Romans 6 there. Dominion. Enslaved. 
set free. We are taken from the domain of darkness and then transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what that means to be crucified with Christ. We have been transplanted. You look at Psalm 1 and the righteous man, the blessed man, right, does not stand, sit, or sit, stand, walk with scoffers, sinners, right? And it describes the blessed man as a transplanted tree from one place to another place by flowing water, right? And we know, we know the imagery of water in Scripture and the Spirit, the Spirit continually feeding his people, right? We are a transplanted tree, or in the words of Paul in Romans uh, 6 or Colossians 1, we are transferred from one realm of destruction and darkness and sin and condemnation and guiltiness and misery to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that happened at Calvary. It doesn't have to happen every day. In fact, it doesn't happen every day. One time, the one-time act of Christ transfers his people from the misery, from the pit, into his beloved son's kingdom. So sin was put away with, the law was put away with, death and the devil were removed. We were under the fear of death by the devil, says Hebrews. And that was put away with. The, the devil no longer, yes, an enemy for sure, but no longer holding any dominion over us. The tyrant was plundered. Wonderful image in the Gospels when Jesus says, a stronger man will go to him and plunder him and take away his captives. And Jesus is talking about he is the stronger man, and he binds the strong man, and he takes away and disarms. He, he disarms the strong man, Satan. He disarms him, and he takes away his possessions. That'd be me and you. And you have a, a picture of a mighty Christ delivering his people. So we are crucified with Christ. I, I don't need the law to prove myself to Christ at all at all. Now, we'll get to in a minute, in a few minutes, what role obedience has, but Paul's talking about justification, a one-time act whereby God declares sinners righteous on account of their faith in Christ alone. There's no obedience that it can prove upon your faith. I have a friend who says every sin you deal with is a forgiven sin if you're in Christ. Think about that. That's, that's helpful. You know, Every sin, every besetting sin I deal with, it's a forgiven sin. It's also a defeated sin. It's a defeated sin because Christ has already died and we died with him. Sin no longer reigns. For the Christian. Sin no longer reigns. Think about your life prior to Christ and how sin in your particular life reigned, right? And depending on when you came to Christ at an older age or younger age, 
the reigning or the rule of that sin might look different. But it was our master, and we obeyed it as a slave obeys a master. And for the Christian, there's no, there's no reigning of sin in your life. Yeah, there's still sin for sure. And the Lord is sanctifying us and, and, and drawing out that sin from us ever so painfully, needfully. But it doesn't reign. It doesn't reign over you anymore. Christ reigns over you. And so the king of kings deposed the tyrant of sin and brings you to himself. So that's one reason why we can just rejoice in life in Christ and just stave off temptations to uh, obey by works and to be justified by works because the law is dead to us. Also, we see this in the second line here in verse 20, that Christ is a, is a resident alien in us. He's a, he, he, he is a resident in us, but he's, a, he's an alien resident. He comes into us, not on our physical birth, but only upon our spiritual birth, and he dwells with us. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's fascinating. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He has this dilemma of self. I've died. And I live. I've died with Christ, yet I live. And he's almost perplexed the way he writes this. And I'm reading out of the ESV. And the ESV, unfortunately, just smooths it out too much. The NAS also just smooths it out too much. Literally, Paul says, I live. Nevertheless, I no longer, but Christ lives in me. And that actually captures this dilemma. Paul says, am I a dead man living or a living man who's dead? Am I living or dead? I've been crucified, but I live, but Christ lives in me. And so the ESV, the NAS, most Translations will say, I no longer live. It's not just that I no longer live. It's that I I do live, but I don't. I do, but nevertheless, I don't. Because Christ lives in me. And so there is this dilemma. Well, who lives? Is Christ living in me and I'm just a puppet? Or do I genuinely live? Well, certainly, we died. We definitely died. The man under the law died. The man who lived according to the law died. And now we may not be living in first century Galatia, but all of us, and this is true from Adam until the very last soul born, attempts to approve themselves to God by works. Moral improvement, good works, religious accomplishments, whatever it may be. And that, that's, the, that's the problem here. Faith or works. But the man who died is the man who was under the law. He died. The man who was under Adam died. The man who was attempting self-justification by works died. That guy died. 
The man who was condemned under the law, he died. The man who boasted of his religious accomplishments, he died. That man is dead. The man who was under the law, guilty under the law, enslaved to sin, and the devil was his father, he died. And he was not raising anytime soon. That guy died. And instead, a new man lives. A man who actually, though still sins, no longer has sin and dominion over him. The new man who lives is justified not by law, but by faith. The new man who lives is not afraid of the law. And as John would say, does not find it either burdensome. The man who lives has a principle of life in him because he has Christ living in in him or her. That man, that brother, that sister, that daughter or son of God lives because not by himself, but because Christ lives in him or her. So, and I want to extend this a, a little further. It is significant that we understand that our lives are lived unto the glory of God. We do not live for ourselves. We are bought with a price. We should glorify God with our bodies. We do not live for ourselves, die for ourselves. Live and die for Christ alone, Christ's glory. Paul's not saying that here. It's true, obviously, in his other letters. But he's not even saying that here. He's saying something a little different here. He's saying here that the Christian lives only because Christ lives in the Christian. And Christ is living out his life in the Christian. The resurrected Lord, the defeater of death and sin and the law, lives in the believer. And he's carrying out his kingdom purposes through the believer. So he not only lives in you locally, he dwells in you as Yahweh's spirit dwelled within the temple. He not only lives in you locally, but he also lives lives in you instrumentally. Using you, sharpening you, guiding you, leading you for his purposes. The thunderous reformer says this on his commentary in Galatians, Luther, Martin Luther. The person lives, but not for himself. The person lives, but not for himself. Or representing himself. But who is this I when he says, not I? This is the I claimed by the law who is subject to fulfill its works. It is this person separated from Christ. This person Paul rejects. That guy died. The person who lived apart from Christ belongs to death and hell. Thus he says, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He is the form of my life, the ornament of my faith. It is like this. Christ attached and joined to me, abiding in me, in this very life, my doing, my living. Indeed, the life I live is Christ himself. Therefore, Christ and I are one in this respect. So you don't live alone. The, the, the Christian no longer is alone from God, from Christ, but is joined and united to Christ. So it's no longer just the sinner at the bar of God's justice, but the sinner 
the Christian and Christ, never to leave you. So the Father looks upon you, not in some fictional way, but he looks upon you as a true son because of a true son and daughter you are because Christ dwells in you. So he dwells in us, he lives in us, but he also instrumentally lives out his life through us. I guess the best way to say in our common parlance is we've heard people say, I, I saw Christ in you in that moment. You know, I saw, I saw Jesus in you when you said this or when you did that. It's a mysterious description, but we get it. That didn't come from me when I said those nice words. The, the overwhelming sense of uh, gratitude or generosity to this other person did not come from me. That comes from Christ living in me. So Christ lives in us, but he lives instrumentally out through us. He lives for me and in my place. He lived in my place when he died. In my place, condemned he stood, says to him. And he also lives in my place as he represents me to the Father in perfect righteousness. So it's no longer just me before God's justice, but Christ in the sinner, Christ in me. It's no longer just me alone traveling along trying to get more and more pure and holy and less sinful, but Christ in me and purifying me. There's no more sinner, but there's always the sinner in Christ. Christ taking you as himself, and you taking Christ as yourself, joined together. His life is yours. Your life is his. And there could not be a further pairing together of lives Almost invariably, marriages bring two opposites together. Opposites attract. There could be no truer to the case for sinner and savior. Unredeemed, totally depraved, holy undefiled Lord of glory. Brought together. So his life is yours, yours is his. Your right, his righteousness is your righteousness. His grace, your grace. His life, your life. His glory, he shares with you. Your sin is his sin. Your suffering, his suffering. Your persecution, his persecution. Evils befall you, evils befall him. So intimately joined is the Christian in Christ that we are no longer alone in this world. We are with the Lord. And he does not revoke that faith union at all. And so there's no, there's no point for law-keeping. There's no point to be a legalist because faith is a self-emptying act. Faith is saying, I have nothing in and of myself to show something to God that he would actually love me. I come desperate, empty. I got nothing, Lord. That's faith. And Christ binds himself to somebody like that. 
He doesn't bind himself to somebody who says, I can do it, it's okay. That person's alone from Christ, separated from Christ. Christ does not take hold of anybody who thinks they don't need to take hold of Christ. You don't get that relationship with a document. With a piece of paper, with the law. That only comes from a person. Lastly, we see this redemption, this personal redemption in the last sentence of 20. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This personal redemption then comes to Christ by faith and continues in faith. This personal redemption is carried out by continual faith, not obedience. Now, I know that might send some triggering feelings. <laughs> the Bible says we ought to obey, and I do not deny that one bit. But how Paul describes the life of the Christian, how, Romans, how Hebrews 11 describes the life of the Christian, is of continual faith. What does faith consist of? Sure, love. Sure, adoration, trust, and obedience. They are not enemies. Faith and obedience are not enemies. But Paul describes the life he goes on as a life in the flesh lived by faith. Not by faith. He's hitting home this point. The law is of no use for the Christian Unto justification. Now, for sanctification? Sure. Chapter 3, verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He tells the Galatians, you came to Christ by faith and you're being told, then carried on through works of the law by obedience. That's wrong. You can't mix a little bit of pure water and cyanide and be okay. It's faith and faith alone for justification. So we carry it out by faith. Should the Christian delight in obeying the Lord? Absolutely. Something is seriously wrong with us if we don't delight in obeying our Lord. But is our success in sanctification or our success in obedience contributing to our justification? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does Christ pick flower petals away from a flower and say, I love you? I love you not. I love you? I love you not. No. Once he sets his love on his people, it is irrevocable. No. No amount of obedience contributes to our justification. And Paul contrasts this. He says, the life I live now. What did he live in the past? By law. By law. I got to do this. I got to do this. Do this or die, says the law. That's the law's attitude. That's the heart of the law. Do this and live or die. And that's not the heart of Christ. He says, now I live in the flesh I live by faith. 
And he is countering, of course, those who say, yeah, come by faith and stay in, in God's goods, graces, by obedience. And that sounds right, because we often parent that way, hold friendships that way. Uh, we often treat each other that way. But there is no upkeep as if your justification is constantly in limbo. No, not at all. We don't have to impress Christ. And if you think about why you might actually obey, why do I feel like I need to read the Bible this morning and then I do? Why do I go to church and I don't really feel like I want to? Why am I nice when I don't want to? Often it's because I think I should, because I know it's right, and God will love me less if I don't. If I don't do these things I know I ought to do, God will love me less. And possibly my salvation's on the line. And Paul says, no, live by faith. I don't have to keep up with the Joneses, spiritually speaking. No, we don't have to impress Christ. Faith does not seek to impress Christ. Faith just says, I'm a wretch. I'm miserable. I need you, Christ, today, this morning, tonight, all day, every day, for the rest of my life. I'm I'm constantly drawing from the reservoir of Christ and his riches of righteousness and holiness to remind myself I am justified and thus I am free to obey with gratitude, free to obey with love, with zeal for the Lord. You don't have to impress Christ. These are not the words of someone who seeks to impress Christ because he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One act. One act of Christ is what Paul thinks on, dwells on, meditates on. He says, he loved me. He loved me in the past when I was an enemy, hostile in mind to God. When the devil was my father, when I wanted nothing to do with the Lord, that's when he loved me. I can't, what can I do now? What can I do now? He loved me then when I was an enemy. How much more would he not revoke his love for me now that I am his brother? He loved me when I was in the gutter of works-based righteousness. He loved me then. And it wasn't just a past thing, but it was also a definitive one-time event. He loved me, and he doesn't have to continue to show his love ever, 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 ever again. Because the one time that we have a Bible situated around the cross of Christ, predicting it, telling of it, that is enough for the Christian. The cross is enough. The cross is enough for the Christian. He loved me one time. Of course, he loves me all the time, but he showed that love in giving himself up for me in a one-time act of obedience. 
I don't have to make him prove that over and over again. Now, because of my transgressions and sin and trials, the hymn says uh, we prove over and over again his faithfulness. Uh, but he gave himself up once for us, and we don't have to convince him that he needs to do something like that again. That's legalism. That's a spirit of legalism that says, I need to prove Christ that he was, that I was worth dying for, or that he was right to die for me, or that I am something or someone that has some measure of value in me that Christ dying for me was a no-brainer. No, not at all. Living by faith just says, he loved me when I was an enemy, when I was alienated, when I was separated from him. He died for me. He bestowed his kindness on me. End of story. End of story. I don't have to show him and impress him that that was a good thing. This is God's infinitely wise counsel and glorious plan playing out. So, and again, the opposite is true. A life lived by law doesn't need a Christ who loves him. A life lived by faith will we'll think about that cross, Christ, the expression of love, and, and draw from that. The legalist will say, I don't need to be loved. I can do it myself. I don't need someone's self-sacrificial death to put me in the right before God. I can do it myself. And, and, and that's an that's a invitation to hell. Because while, well, to put it one way, it's impossible to be justified by law. Impossible. And it's also impossible to carry out our Christian lives as if I need to continually impress him with my new religious accolades or gifts or accomplishments. I'll just close with this quote again with Luther. A life of faith says, I exist in Christ. Okay. I exist in Christ. In the righteousness of Christ. And Christ says, I am that sinner. His sins and death are mine because he adheres to me and I to him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That Christ is yours. And, and you are Christ's. And we need no uh, relationship uh, maintenance other than faith alone. Other than faith alone. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly in your Son. Our righteousness. And I pray that you would stave off attempts in us to...